0: Energy thinks a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. Today I'm sharing with you someone else's podcast on which I was a guest, but I thought that you would enjoy it because we visit so many of the themes that I cover in my work at Adamantine and, and uh, throughout this podcast and particular in the book that I'm writing right now. So so today you'll hear me as a guest on David Ramston Woods Hot Take of the Day podcast. He is known as DRW and he does not often agree with much I have to say and we have a healthy back and forth uh, via email and I've been a guest on his podcast before Uh, but this was really uh, an important conversation for me to engage uh, David in this moment and I also just so appreciated the way he engaged with me. So I thought that you would enjoy it and I hope you do. So please enjoy my conversation with DRW and you can find out more about his podcast and his Substack writing in the show notes.
1: What is going on, Hot Take Nation? It is David Ramsey Wood here for another episode of the Hot Take of the Day podcast. And this week, we welcome back Tisha Shuler, who was last on about two years ago at the start of the pandemic, and now she's back for the end of the pandemic. Tisha, how are you today?
0: I'm doing great, David. It's so great to be back with you. I love hearing from you about the stuff I put out and I love seeing the work you're doing.
1: Well, I love that. And and so the reason I wanted to have Tisha back was she writes a newsletter and it comes out about once a week and, and I'll, I'll get you to describe to listeners where they can find it. But, but the primary topic is sort of an ESG perspective that these two things can be true. And you have a really unique approach to... The conversation so first tell people where they can find it and what your broad theme is and then explain the core of this you know you don't have to agree with the climate change decarbonization platform but a lot of people it's a core thought and so how do we play a role in that take it away
0: Sure. So you can find my weekly email at energythinks.com. And so thanks for, thanks for the plug. And really the idea of both of these things are true came out of desperation. I had been working first five years as the CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, and then founded Adamantine to think about um, how to help oil and gas companies with conflict and realizing that a lot of the things that we were doing as an industry just weren't changing this battle narrative around climate and around. Fossil fuels, and so the the perspective is that there are two mindsets in the world. One is ours. What I will generically describe as ours, the oil and gas industry is something you and I, I think, share, which is this idea that the world's going to need oil and gas for a long time. Um, it's the lifeblood of our economy, and it's what helps us bring prosperity to people around the world. And then there's this other mindset that views climate as the top priority, and in fact, a moral obligation to address climate. And in, in that mindset there is in fact uh, an expectation that we're going to get off fossil fuels today and there's all these energy solutions and if we only had the political will um, we would be there already and the reason that these two mindsets matter is because it doesn't really matter if one is right and one is wrong the the shift in my understanding is that this fossil free mindset exists and it It in many ways dominates politics, investor sentiment, global um, discussion about the energy future. And so, as an industry, even though it is my perspective that we have the facts on our side the facts of energy demand, the facts of uh, how difficult decarbonization is, how complex the energy system is, how much we Energy will be required to keep prosperity and life as we know it going, particularly as we raise billions out of poverty. So we have reality, I will say, on our side. And yet it doesn't matter if there is this huge number of people around the world that view the world through the fossil free lens. So the opportunity through this paradigm shift is for us as an oil and gas industry to say, OK, if that perspective exists, how do I engage with it more skillfully as a leader.
1: So one of the, one of the things, so I, there's two things I want to take, but, but one, and I love the way you describe it is table stakes. And, and I think regardless of your perspective on the, why we're doing things, I believe that waste is bad. I've always hated flaring. I've always hated venting. I've always hated using fresh water and fracks. I've always hated putting product on trucks when it could be in pipelines. Those are just, to me, good business practices to be less wasteful. You know, you're always going to build the natural gas pipeline. So I always thought of that was a fixed cost. And I wanted every molecule that I made of gas going through it so that I would get a better rate of return on that project rather than flaring and so i would say separate and apart from any regulations carbonization decarbonization the my role in the world those were what i always viewed as important things for us to do Mm -hmm. you see them as table stakes what else need is part of that conversation i guess from a table Mm -hmm. stakes perspective in your perspective
0: yeah, and, and part of the history that got us here is that our you know our industry in in its recent past has we haven't done ourselves any favor, including my role, you know, when I was the head of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, because we were so Proud of the key role we played in transforming and industrializing our nation and the world that we didn't always embrace as quickly as possible. This idea that you just articulated, which is that we have to be good environmental citizens along with our neighbors and how we address our footprint, our water, our emissions. I think we've come a long way and our industry has a lot to be proud of and a lot to contribute to removing our, to, to minimizing our footprint and just being good neighbors. And it's something that I think everyone in our industry really prioritizes now. Now, I don't think that's sufficient to transform the conversation. And so what I see is the opportunity for us to engage in the climate conversation as we would any global crisis where we can be a partner and a leader. So whether it's um, how our company leaders engaged in the COVID pandemic, how company leaders are really stepping up now to think about how we can address global energy security. Climate is just another opportunity for oil and gas leaders to say, okay. I see how how this huge number of people and leaders view the world. Decarbonization is their priority. In what way can I share that priority and provide really big solutions to decarbonizing. And it is my strong, strong belief that decarbonization happens faster with the oil and gas industry involved because we understand the complexity of the energy system. We have the brightest minds around the world and we have um, a, an ability to innovate pretty much constantly. I mean, we're the rocket scientists of the subsurface. Like there is no problem we can't solve. So so I, I really encourage the industry to embrace, Race the challenge of climate as the opportunity to co-create the future with people that historically we we perceived as our opponents.
1: So, uh, I I I struggle with this one. So I don't know where this this conversation is going to take us because I really do want to talk about ESG and the role and maybe regulations. But I've been really evolving my my thinking on some of these topics. But specifically, what if you just at the core? Don't believe that decarbonization, not only is that it's good, it's that it's actually bad, it's unnecessary, and it's a money profit driven narrative that has been controlled by the media and the elites and those that stand to make trillions of dollars in profit off of us rebuilding the grid. Where I struggle in this topic is I fundamentally disagree with the goal of decarbonization. So I'm trying to have these two things are true, where you're saying a large part of the world thinks that decarbonization is our number one priority. And for me to engage in the conversation, I need to get on the same page with them, maybe. And Mm. you know what I mean? Because
0: yeah, yeah, that's it's, such an yeah, it's such an interesting perspective. So I may or may not hit this right. But so so let's let's push each other. Yes. So I would take I would suggest to you, David, and all you represent, which is a huge number of people that the climate prioritization is like a hurricane off the coast. It is a business risk a whole bunch of very sophisticated political leaders financial investors have said decarbonizing the energy system is among their top priorities so in some ways it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree it provides an existential business risk and so as a sophisticated company leader how do you engage with that do you try to negotiate with the hurricane or do you prepare your facilities and your operations for the hurricane and if you prepare you could harden your facilities right you You could or you could wonder about how to be more engaged, resilient and engaging in this conversation. I will say my personal feeling is that climate is not the world's top priority that i'm more a- aligned with projections that there are significant effects underway and in the future but we have a lot bigger fish to fry uh, including um you know global security and raising people out of poverty so i will say even though i spend all my time talking about how the oil and gas industry should address climate it's not my personal priority and it's not where i think we should spend all our time nevertheless I think to be an effective oil and gas leader the reality on the ground is that you have to engage in this conversation differently and and the great thing is that as companies engage, it opens little windows for more nuanced and sophisticated conversations around the time frame, the reality, the need for net negative, um, the need for resilience, the need for adaption. And so that's where I I think that's where I am with that. Like, I, I'm not sure. I don't think it's productive that a lot of climate hawks have dismissed those who don't think carbonization should be a top priority. That's not constructive constructive nevertheless here we are and so how do we engage in a in a constructive sophisticated way so now tell me what i got wrong
1: no i you know what i'm going to give you huge credit for that because i i really i really respect that view and that view speaks to me and it speaks to the fact that our industry actually has two problems problem number one is you succinctly and perfectly said in order to be an oil and gas leader, despite the fact you may not agree with the goal, it is a goal. Therefore, to communicate with your investors and your stakeholders and the citizens of the world, you need to address it. And so I think that that's a wonderful, wonderful point. The second piece to that is it then puts into context. I've always been critical of the Mike Worths, the Darren Woods, who have a platform, who go on CNBC, who get asked about these things, and they don't come out with the stance that I took, which is I don't think decarbonization is a priority. Here's why. And and, and engage in that debate. And, Mm -hmm. And so what you just told me is leaders can't participate in that debate because it's like negotiating with a hurricane. And, and then at the same time, I feel as though the narrative has been so stolen and conversation between people who, who disagree has, has broken down so much in the last 10 years that they're like, the science is settled. You're not allowed to ask questions. Stop it. Move forward. Mm -hmm. Instead of having a conversation that's like, okay, well, let's go back and let's look at the trade-offs. If the cost Mm -hmm. is this and if this and if this, And, and so your point was those have to be separate, And I had not thought about it that way before. And I think that that's a very excellent point.
0: So what would be super fun once you have a little space to have a conversation and would be for people like you and me to say, well, where should decarbonization be in the list of priorities? And you could make a case for why it should be at zero or whatever. And I can make a case for why it should be seven of 10. And we could say, okay, and what are the trade-offs of that, both from a risk management perspective, because that would be the number one case I would make. To, you know, to someone would say like, okay, let's, like, if we're going to, let's weigh managing our risks versus the investment and costs and, and see if we can also do things that mitigate other issues at the same time. Cause generically a lot of decarbonization can be partnered with efficiency and, you know, other things that, that I think we could all agree are good. So I think that would be really fun. There's a, as a just an interesting side note, there's this really interesting debate going on in the climate community about, is it productive to keep saying climate catastrophe and climate apocalypse and climate, because one, it demotivates people, but two, it's actually doesn't, it's not reflective of the modeling science. And I, I, and I just think that's so interesting. It's part of what you said, like there's a, like one gets dismissed if you don't say climate's my top priority, but also even within the movement, one gets dismissed if you say it's not apocalyptic. And so that's just an interesting commentary on what's happening out in the world. I don't think we can play in that debate. I think that debate has to happen among climate scientists. And all we can say is, hey, we're here. We're here to help. We're here to work on it. Hey, who wants to work with us? We're going to get some stuff done while you guys are are worrying about the... The zombies coming So
1: so I, I think that that's a great point Because I too have noticed that Because mm-hmm. a lot of the people Like in Alex Epstein And, and we're talking um, we're, we're jointly heading the AAPL conference In Chicago June 16th So you'll get two different perspectives But he amongst others are, are always bringing up Well you know 20 years ago Al Gore said we had 10 years And 10 years ago Fatith Barol of the IEA Said we have 7 years like And so we're bringing up All these predictions Of why they were wrong And I feel like they almost felt like they've lost the campaign. They've lost the narrative. And they're like, okay, we got to like, we got to re-message because, you know, everyone's tired of an emergency. And if we keep calling everything an emergency, like COVID was an emergency and climate's an emergency and the the inflation's an emergency and Ukraine's an emergency, like we're losing it. So I've definitely noticed it. I definitely agree that we shouldn't be a part of that. It's
0: yeah. And can I, can I just add on to what you're saying? Because you and I do have two fundamentally different perspectives about the motivations of people who prioritize climate. And we talked about this two years ago. And so it'll be fun to see how we both evolved our thinking. But I still assume that most climate activists and and certainly very, very many climate scientists are sincerely terrified and sincerely Think that these things are an emergency. So I don't see like a profit motivation or like an elite conspiracy to put climate at the top of the agenda. I think like good natured people are doing the best they can. I also think it's largely counterproductive to actual progress, but I don't see it like any nefarious motivation. And that makes also my willingness to engage a little different. I like to just assume everyone wakes up on the side of right, trying to get good things done. And when I'm wrong, it hurts, but that's that's more how I choose to engage. We will
1: be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast, but are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now back to the show. I so I agree I agree with you that most people feel that way and and so you talk about the evolution over the last 2 years and and so you know we can take this so many different ways but like when I think about what my role was in oil and gas and and I have a very different take than Chris writes bringing people out of energy poverty My goal as a business was to produce as much oil and as much natural gas at the lowest cost to sell at the highest price to maximize the profit for the shareholders to get them cash back as soon as possible so that they could then take that cash and put it in whatever other productive use. Then my sole and only purpose was to make money and and from that lens i also view regulation i view you know diversity and inclusion i think it's a good idea to have a diverse point of view a inclusive work culture but I would never mandate well like in California thou shalt have a woman thou shalt have a minority thou shalt have an employee like I feel like if people are truly trying to do the best and maximize profit they're going to do a whole bunch of things that regulations are not even involved so when I talked about you know water not on trucks no flaring no emissions I did that because it was maximized my own personal rate of return. And so like, that's how I think through the world, which I think puts me at a different place on all of these conversations than others because of my base mm. belief, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, and part of what we're going on, if we want to talk about a different hurricane off the coast, it's the hurricane of the millennial generation. And I I mean, it remains to be seen how the millennials as a cohort, as a generation evolve in their life priorities. But nevertheless, you know, I will presume that like me, you're Gen X and we were just raised in this like, like get a job, make good money, work as hard as you can so you can retire. And that's the way that we approach the world. But part of I think what creates the hurricane is this. Different worldview, which is an empowered worldview because of so much abundance and ability to take so much for granted on planet Earth from our water to our, you know, invisible, affordable, always there power and energy. But it is this expectation that we're here to do Good or do more. And so all the conversations about corporate purpose, um, companies' responsibilities on politics and equity and justice. I think of these things in some ways in the same way. Like it doesn't really matter what an individual leader's personal point of view is what matters is how do you consider this as a business risk and how do you engage and bring out the best in your workforce and what is that what does that require of you that's different than in the past and personally I love because I have my own business so I can do I can do whatever I want I love the idea of making an impact for good in my work and I think I believe that that motivates and mobilizes my employees to work really, really hard. So, but that is a value judgment also. And so it's this very gray area that I think is ripe for wonderful engagement and debates and like, where does money fit in? And none of this works if the money's not flowing. So it is a lot like these values and this doing good is a luxury on top of making money. So I I love the conversations around it.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because where I went as I was sort of going through my my base profit motive was back to, I do believe 95, 98% of people wake up in the morning and they think about maximizing the the good they bring the world. I think about the 2% who control the money and I think of them as the way I think about myself. And I sit mm. back and I say, okay, so I have this win thing and I would like to see the world spend $130 trillion on a on a transition because I'm gonna make 30% profit on that spend, which means there's $30 trillion worth of pie. How do I motivate people? Well, I use fear. That's clearly it's gonna work. So I'm gonna come up with this climate apocalypse and I'm gonna track down Greta Thunberg and I'm gonna elevate her platform using all of my connections and social media and money so that she becomes the face of the movement that scares the living bejesus out of people. And then I'm gonna go to all the... governments, like in Europe, where they don't have access to oil and natural gas. I mean, it is very funny. I mean, at the end of the day, when resources don't cross borders, soldiers will and Europe is a resource constrained environment and so they were able to scare the Europeans being like well you know you don't have access to oil you don't have access to natural gas you don't really have access to coal you have to import all these things but wind and solar can exist for you and they're natural and they and then and then your economy never has any risk so i scare the hell out of Europe i scare the hell out of people and then i drive the narrative so it's the 2% of people mm. that are behind the curtain that i am most concerned about because i Assume they're like me, just with more reach. But oh,
0: that's so yeah, that's so interesting. So I'm so glad that I don't live in your world because that's terrifying. As that a terrifying world, David. Oh. In my world, I so I'm going to offer the that like the opposite conspiracy theory, which is what if we cared so much about human rights, about um, the supply chain being filled by responsible companies who cared about water and, you know, didn't, you know, use child labor under the power of cartels, uh, you know, and gangs and gang violence. Like what if we cared so much that the U.S. and Canada became the de facto producer of the world's oil and gas because we're the most responsible, we have the most responsible companies. And so we actually like this ESG path becomes so potent that it actually brings all the resource production back to the US and Canada. So that's the world I want to live in.
1: I and I and don't get me wrong. I love that world and I truly believe that it is crazy that at the one hand we can President Biden can cancel Keystone XL and on the other hand support the Nord Stream pipeline, which is the thing he did on the first day of, of office. I struggle that in November senator warren sent a letter to the ceos of the natural gas company saying you are profiteering by sending our natural gas offshore and sending it to europe where prices are higher and that's bad for the american consumer and then six months later we make a deal to send more gas offshore to europe to help them get off like so where i struggle is that it is the politician's job to represent the best of Canada and the U.S. And if they had coherent energy policy, poverty, homelessness, uh, health, if they had all those policies and that's what they were doing correctly, then we would be producing more natural gas and oil in Colorado where we have the highest regulations really on the planet. And Jared Polis has done nothing but discourage investment to help bring these clean barrels and this affordable energy to the world. So On this, you and I totally agree and that it's politics that is getting in the way because you can't have nuanced conversation when you're in politics.
0: Yes. So essentially, I think in these moments where the world needs oil and gas and understands our importance, we don't want to waste any time talking about how unproductive policies of the past have been. Instead, I think we walk into those tiny openings and create new conversations about how we're showing up to provide more oil and gas. We can meet the dual challenge of decarbonizing and meeting the world's energy needs. And this is how we're doing it. So that's, I don't want to waste any more time working in the old fighting paradigm. I want to create the new partnership paradigm. You know, will there be a reckoning and what will... What, what will make the reckoning occur? And the, we'll know the reckoning occurs when the soccer moms revolt when they go to fill up their minivan, right? Like that's when we know the Great Reckoning has occurred. It is my observation that the reckoning never occurs. And so no matter whether it's, you can't get your natural gas pipeline into the East and people have a propane and heating oil shortage, or you can't get your oil across Canada. And there's there are literally people without access to energy because environmentalists are blocking the trans- transport routes, or you have this moment of global crisis that clearly drives up energy prices in extremely obvious ways. And yet the public is obsessed with the profits that oil and gas companies are going to make this quarter. And so... My observation is that the reckoning never occurs, and that people love to blame companies, particularly in this moment when companies are generically considered evil and capitalism is considered questionable. That, and instead, they will always blame the company, even when, for example, in New York, They could not get a pipeline in, but but people still blamed the the gas utility for not providing new gas hookups. And so, if that's the case, it becomes another one of these hurricanes off the coast. Like there will not be a reckoning. So, how do we show up in this moment as solution providers in a way that creates space for nuanced conversation about complexity and reality? And I think first it has to be with that sharing aspiration conversation.
1: I, I like that. I like that approach. Now, um, we talk about, you know, we've obviously stayed in touch in the last two years and and I, I read your newsletter. I'm sure you've seen mine and we kind of go back and forth on, on disagreements and, and I'll occasionally be like, I don't know if I totally agree with you on that. I'm curious what your take on my the great shrug is what I called it. And I wrote it, started writing about it in January 2021. And I said that we will not be invited to the table and we will not be able to have the policies of the past change. unless consumers feel an incredible amount of pain and they themselves become the ones who are yelling at politicians because when oil and gas is cheap, Everyone's like, well, we can get off the product because I don't feel it. I don't think about it. I don't need it. So climate change is number one, but natural gas is now above $7 in MCF, which means heating costs tripled this winter. Uh, in Europe, they're five times higher than that, which means that heating costs went up 20 X for many, for many people in Europe. Uh, driving your car, it cost me $115 to fill my, my car the other day. And so consumers are feeling the pain. And my suggestion was good let them, let them yell, let them scream, let them realize how important it is so that we can then go back to having productive conversations about policy. I'm curious how you respond to that.
0: Well, I would certainly want to say, what are our shared priorities here? And even if that shared priority is decarbonizing as fast as possible as the only priority, what is your willingness and ability to work with the oil and gas industry. And the reason I would start with questions is because we can't actually accomplish any kind of new thinking without really understanding the realities of that hurricane off the coast. And for example, it may be that there will have to be some sort of evil, you know, some sort of bad actor that allows good actors to emerge. So we see that, for example, for a little while, we saw that with coal, you know, coal's coal is the devil. So there you have to have a devil. So therefore, you can have um, an angel. In this context, we have an un, perhaps an, an opportunity we will not see again for a generation, which is that Russia is what's evil. And so what are we trying to accomplish on all fronts? And how can the oil and gas industry partner in that? And how can we mitigate this generic need for the oil and gas industry to be considered evil out in the public's mindset? Like, what do we have to do to mitigate that? Those would be the questions I would look to answer and then craft a solution that works with shared priorities, the need to have Uh, you know, an opponent of some form and then a path, a realistic path that takes into account political realities to get there.
1: It's, I mean, it's, it's really a very good point on the reckoning and, and it comes back and it causes me perhaps an existential crisis around my core belief. For example, you know, if I was the CEO of Starbucks and I believed I would sell more coffee by weighing in on BLM and letting my employees wear their BLM t-shirts to work, I would do that until such time as it became clear that I wasn't going to get more money from that behavior. And so when I think about what you said, that the reckoning will never come, I struggle because I would say, well, good, then oil is going to go to 200 a barrel and natural gas is going to go to 14 and MCF. My profits are going to be insane. I'm going to buy back all my stock, pay down all my debt so I'm not beholden to any banks, any politicians, any any public thing. I'm going to disappear into the night as the most profitable company ever. I'm going to pay great bonuses for my employees and that's going to be that. Which balances against my knowledge that it is the most important product in the world for the economy and if prices were 200 a barrel and natural gas was, 14 and MCF. The world is in such a bad state of affairs that there's a whole bunch of other consequences that come with that. So it it does lead me to a bit of a crisis around how I would balance that. You know, it's, it's funny. You make me think of, uh, I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast this week and I can't remember who the guest was, it was super uh, Douglas, Douglas Murray. And he talked about this, this Harvard study where they took someone who was like definitively correct and someone who was definitively not. So I'll use flat earth, although I don't think that's what it was. And the person who believes flat earth is told by the person who's round and shown all the evidence. And at the end of the study, most of the time, the person doubles down on being wrong. So it's not like they have this, aha, you were right. It's so tied to their their core value system, their self-worth, their self-perception, that they're unable to... Change their mind. And I do wonder if, in this environment, both with climate change being a religion, uh, the Democratic Party really taking anti fossil fuel as like a key plank of the platform, I do wonder if this administration would even be able to have the conversations with you when you ask those questions, or if ultimately there's going to have to be a changing of the guard where through defeat, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, actually look at themselves, assess their policies, come back to the true middle, come back to true conversations and governance by by law instead of emergency order. What do you what do you take from from all that in terms of your concerns?
0: Yeah, I think the opportunity on some in so many ways, particularly at this moment, oil and gas companies actually have a tremendous amount of power. And energy leaders have a tremendous platform. Now, we squander it often engaging in the battles of yesterday and in the narrative that was defined by someone else where we're trying to fight for our role. And instead, I think the opportunity for us is to really say, these are the challenges the world's facing. This is how we're rising to meet those challenges. And we're willing to engage in new kinds of conversations and more or less like shrug off these antiquated ideas about our role in the Past and and the way the way that that people want to make us the villain. The, that's what's so interesting about the study that you cited is it equally applies to our industry as it does to our opponents. Like we get so, so enamored with the battle and wanting to articulate like we are important, we have a role. It's going to take a long time, which is all true. But perhaps we're more enamored with the argument than we are with the opportunity to transform it, which we really want and. And of course, people who want to see the oil and gas industry run out of business um, are perhaps more committed to that point of view than actually addressing climate. So I, I think the opportunity is for us to create the new space, the new conversation. I and I actually think the burden is on us to show up in the new space and in the, the new uh create the new conversation because we have the resources, the people, the answers, uh, the ability to lead in the energy system. And and in many ways. Everyone else is playing some kind of reactive game. So that's that's I, I'd like to reposition us as the narrators of the future as opposed to the embattled incumbents.
1: I think that's a really excellent way to end it. And I agree. And and I think that moreover, you and I came into this conversation knowing that we I mean, we we like each other. We respect each other. Uh, I think we trust the other person's motives and but we definitely come at issues from a different perspective and through dialogue, through long form conversations with people of a different opinion, most people will find probably that 90 to 95% of the world you agree on and the 5% you disagree on, there's probably some nuggets that will change your thinking that will make you more effective as a person and as a leader. And so I really, I really respect what you're doing and, and the way you present that. And I understand it a lot better now that we've had this conversation. So thank you for joining us today, Tisha.
0: Well, thank you, David. And I invite your, your perpetual pushback because your bright mind makes my thinking stronger. So thank you for what you do.
1: I appreciate it. Well, it was, we'll chat with you soon. What an interesting conversation. I, 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 reflect, I reflect on it and I think about the two points. Number one, that to be the CEO of a public company, you do have to address whether you agree or disagree the climate change uh, narrative, the, the role that bankers and climate activists and, and environmental lobbies play. And that that perhaps my approach that would have been, you know, Mike Worth needs to stand up and say, here's the facts. You know, I mean, it, it makes it makes some sense that that they are hamstrung in their ability to do that and be productive. And while it might feel good to punch back. Uh, It may not be as productive. I think that's a really interesting takeaway. And then the second one, obviously, is is my lens of profitability and the role of the corporation probably has not enough nuance. So I'm going to have to think about that. I hope the conversations we have, the newsletter, the writings, and all the things we share help spark thoughts in your mind. And I appreciate you joining us on this journey. Until next time, be safe, be good. Have a great day.
0: That's our episode for today. I want to just thank David for having me as a guest on hot take of the day because he has very strong opinions and yet he was willing to change his mind or at least think about changing his mind in real time and that takes such strength of character and confidence in oneself and I just appreciated that so I hope you enjoyed this and if you like what you're hearing can you take a moment and rate the energy thinks podcast go over and subscribe to a hot take of the day and let me know what you think I want to thank a Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner, who do all the work that makes Energy Thinks possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.